Ma'am, what are you doing here? I got lost in the books. I I've never really cared about them before, but I came in here today to buy a present for my niece, and all the books were so amazing. It must be so great to work at Barnes & Noble. Actually, the store closed four hours ago. I'm with the night cleaning crew. Yes, you have a rugged magnetism like Babcock, one of the telepathic virally altered vampires who destroys the world in tests of the Dubervilles. I could be wrong, but I don't think that happens. Was I wrong? Then you must spank me. Spank me to the edge of my limits the way Christian spanks Anna and all the pretty horses by Julian Flynn. First of all, I'm not spanking you. Second of all, I think you're getting these books all wrong. What's right and wrong? Where do these ideas come from? Isn't that the question Dostoevsky explored in Where the Wild Things Are? When Carrie set the whole prom on fire? God, I love books! They're so amazing! Ma'am, have you been trying to read all the books here all at once? Yes, of course! I don't want to miss anything, so I keep just grabbing new ones. Have you read Of Mice and Men by Marcel Proust? Don't you love when the sandworms come? Ma'am, you need to calm down. I'm going to give you these four beers I was going to drink on the job tonight. I want you to sip them slowly and just not look at any books for the next 24 hours. Thank you. You are so kind. Like Winnie the Pooh and 100 Years of Solitude. You know, I might even just lie down here in the self-help aisle and take a little nap. But not before I read Men Are From Mars, Women Are the Five People You Meet in Heaven by John Updike and listen to the show about books. And now, the author of A Tinkle in Rhyme, Poetry of the Prostate, Colin McEnroe. Goodbye, Babcock. All right. She seems uh, very overexcited about books. But you can't get too excited about books. I mean, there's no such thing as too excited about books. That would be the official position of this show, at least on this particular day. We have three wonderful authors with us. They've written very different kinds of books, but uh, we actually do believe that we can get them to talk among themselves, that there are interesting threads uh, that go dart among them. Uh, and actually, one of them, I mean, I heard some reference uh, just then to Marcel Proust. And uh, I've been... Th <laughs> Okay, this will be those unliterary possible reference, except sort of not. So I was watching Jeopardy the other day, and Arthur Chu was on, because Arthur Chu is just like on all the time now. And um, so the correct answer was, in fact, A la recherche de Tom Perdue, for final Jeopardy. I, I hope I'm not giving this away, but uh, it was A la recherche de, de Tom Perdue. Except that, uh, anyway, what Arthur wrote on his card or whatever was um, In Search of Lost Time. And Alex Trebek, and Alex Trebek and Arthur Chu don't like each other. I mean, anybody who watched Jeopardy's Jeopardy knows that. And so, and Alex is looking at him and going, well, that's sort of a secondary title. I mean, it's really remembrances of things past. And Arthur Chu's looking at him going, no, it's not. And I just thought, it's sort of great that two recognizable people on television are actually looking at each other in a very unpleasant way about the correct uh, approximation of, of of Marcel Proust's title. I mean, that's sort of, uh, for all the Philistinism to which we are witness, uh, that's a good sign right there. And it's also kind of true that, you know, I mean, that's sort of a, one of the common threads among these three books. Let me shut up and uh, introduce the, the authors. Two of them you've met before a bunch of times on our show. Lev Grossman's joining us from studios uh, in New York. Uh, he's been on our show many times, and uh, I am uh, vastly in love with his Trilogy of books, uh, which uh, concludes in The Magician's Land, uh, which is out now. Uh, Brian Slattery uh, is with us. He's been on many, many, many shows. Uh, and his uh, most recent book is The Family Hightower, kind of a different kind of book uh, for him. He's also uh, the co-editor of the New Haven Review and now the arts editor 
uh, of uh, the New Haven Independent. Uh, and Ruth Crocker is uh, the, the newbie here, but we're going to really get to know her very well today. Her uh, first book, Those Who Remain, Remembering and Reunion After War, uh, is what brings her here. It differs a little bit from Lev's and Brian's books in the sense that it's a memoir. Uh, it certainly is about the remembrance of, of things past. Um, uh, so the, we're just going to begin by getting them each to do sort of brief little descriptions of their books before we get them talking among themselves about life uh, and authorship uh, in 2014 and why anybody has the guts even to write a book anymore. Um, so, uh, Lev, I'll let you begin. Um, and uh, it's not an easy thing to uh, sum up uh, the Magician's Trilogy, although I, I always say it's sort of hipster wizards. Uh, I've got it down to two words. Um, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm tempted to place, place a panicky call to my agent, who's much better at describing the books uh, than <laughs> I am. Uh, they are fantasy novels, um, very much inspired by Harry Potter and, and uh, also the, the Chronicles of Narnia. But they're written for grown-ups uh, in a very grown-up language. Um, uh, and they add in a lot of the kind of, I don't know, the sort of emotional complexity and also the sex and drinking uh, that uh, are often absent, I guess, from sort of middle grade and young adult fantasy. I think also, I mean, they, they I feel as though they share a little something with um, The Sopranos in the sense that Sopr The Sopranos was about mafia guys who've seen all the movies, right? And, you know, they're constantly debating. They're very aware of the fictional take on them. Um, they're constantly talking about Scorsese this and, you know, Francis uh, shot this that way. Um, and these wizards, these uh, these magicians, they're they're very aware of the literary tradition in which they exist. I mean, they, there's a little bit of Calvino and Pirandello here. These guys, they almost kind of know that they're they're in a story. Absolutely, The Sopranos was actually a major inspiration for me. I wanted it. I, I wanted to write something that was kind of disenchanted uh, uh, and kind of de demystified. Um, uh, uh, in the same way that Sopranos is, I have uttered the sentence in the past, the magicians is to Harry Potter the way Sopranos is to the Godfather. It's not a million miles away. Yeah, I, I think that that's true. And actually, one of the, I think one of the common threads, something we'll talk uh, about as we get all three of you talking, is also that question of, is life a story? Um, this is a question that Quentin, your protagonist, uh, or perhaps one of your protagonists, uh, is essentially asking himself all the way through. Am I in a story? What kind of story is it? Um, let's uh, introduce the rest of the group here. So Brian Slattery, uh, you go, you'll go next. Uh, the Family Hightower is a, a different kind of book. Uh, it's also, to a certain degree, about remembrances of things past. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also, uh, to a certain degree, I mean, I think l characters who are less conscious of the question of whether they're in a story or, or not. Yes, but there's a, sure. there's a narrator who, a very chatty, you know, fourth <laughs> wall narrator who really is constantly asking the question, yes. what kind of story is this? Is this a story? But tell, tell us what kind of story it is. Yeah. So um, part of the reason for the narrator's existence is because the book is kind of a, a mash of a sort of uh, multi-generational family story about a really messed up family. And then it's also about organized crime, um, new and old in Cleveland and Eastern Europe. And part of what it's able, to, part of the way that those things hang together is this chatty narrator. It, it's also, um, uh, I, I'm not saying uh, it has the same kind of commonality that I just implied, well, well correctly apparently, about Lev's, um, uh, about Lev and the Sopranos. But um, to me, <laughs> as I was reading this, I was thinking, this is a little bit like George R.R. R. Martin in the sense that don't get too attached to any character because there's oh, yeah. nothing you can do to save people in yeah, this Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, it's part of, you know, it's part of the, like, you know, having, having, having read and watched a bunch of sort of organized crime stuff because I kind of like it. 
but then also doing research about actual organized crime and the way that those things are different. I mean, the the, the body count in those stories is always like horrendously high. Um, you know, and in, in the fiction, it's for dramatic effect, and in nonfiction, it's horrific. And part of the challenge of writing this book was trying to do sort of both at the same time. Um, I, I want to come back to that. I, at least if we have time, if it works out, uh, I want to come back to that whole question. Because I think also sort of, all these books have really interesting questions about time in them, uh, the re- reader's relationship to time in them and the way uh, stories are told. Ruth Crocker, uh, you, um, are, your book is also very much about the remembrances of things past. Um, it, it really, I mean, we often talk about the past as being buried or can you unearth the past? And, I mean, this in this book, uh, not only do you deal with this as uh, uh, as a writer in a very literal way, you've because it's a memoir, you've lived this in a literal way. This book is to a large, a huge degree about unearthing the past. Tell us uh, about uh, this memoir. Well, it starts uh, with the event that sort of everything flew off from, which was the death of my first husband in Vietnam. And uh, at that time, I was so devastated that I decided rather than bury him, I would bury all of our letters and memorabilia, his uniforms and so forth. And then I was going to leave it, leave that in the past. And but uh, things happen. And many years later, by chance, I met the guys who were with him when he was in Vietnam. And it was just a kind of serendipity. And it raised questions as I listened to their stories and heard first-person reports about what really happened and what did he say in those letters in the last six months. And in the process of... So I began to not even think about digging up the letters at that point, but then somehow I did. And so I think that this going... For me, the going back and forth in time was a way to find out what my story was, mm-hmm. what how how those early... Uh, how I was influenced to even make that decision to bury the letters, and you know, um, we should make it clear that so when your when your husband died after your husband's death in Vietnam, you he was cremated. You scattered his uh, ashes uh, on a very famous uh, mountain peak, uh, which we can talk about as well. Uh, but then, then these letters and other artifacts uh, of your lives together were buried in a coffin inside a concrete vault underground. Right. Yeah. So to get to them, it was quite a, I mean, it was a true excavation. Yeah. And everyone assumed that there really was a body there because that was my secret at the time, you know, within my family because they knew. But um, so it was quite a, that was the other thing that sort of made me think this is permanent because I couldn't, the idea of imagining a truck and a backhoe and all that digging up (laughs) this grave was uh, formidable to me. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to talk to all of you about this. Uh, Betsy Kaplan, our producer, I think uh, had you all reading this uh, an essay by Tim Parks in, in the New York Review of Books. And at one point in this essay, uh, Parks is comparing two pretty disparate writers, Yale James, uh, who wrote Fifty Shades of Grey, and uh, Haruki Murakami, who, who writes much more literarily acclaimed novels and is, you know, a constant Nobel contender. Um, and he, he, sort of says, he sort of says, well, is there anything they have in common? Uh, And he said they both address, quote, the individual's need to negotiate the most intimate relationships in order to get the most from life without losing independence and selfhood. And I I thought about that and I thought, well, first of all, maybe that's like 75 percent of serious literature uh, brings up those questions. I I, I don't know. Uh, But it sort of works for all of your books. I I mean, Lev, um, react to that in terms of, of it seems to me. 
it, that really is, if Quentin is your true protagonist, and it's been suggested by, in other publications that maybe you have more than one protagonist, maybe Julia is really the protagonist, but if Quentin, this troubled uh, young magician, is really the protagonist, it seems like that is a lot of what his quest is. Um, the thing with the individual and reality, and uh, not sure I've completely followed that. Uh, I, I think Quentin's um, quest is, is, is to feel powerful. When he begins the books, when he begins his journey, he is struggling with depression, struggling with the sense that the world around him is disenchanted, has no me- holds no meaning for him, holds no pleasure for him, uh, and he needs to learn over time that he can be a powerful person, that he can experience joy and love and loss uh, and, and survive those things. Uh, and, you know, part of the metaphor is is his learning magic, his acquiring the ability to command these supernatural forces. Um, but it's very much about his, his inner state and his coming to a sense of himself uh, as a person and as a, as a powerful person. Um, I want to see, also, we're live here in the afternoon. If people want to be part of this conversation, they can call at 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I also want to reiterate something I said to Ruth and, and Brian before we got uh, Lev on the line, which is, uh, you don't have to wait for me to call on you. If one of you says something that interests you, uh, you know, just jump right in and, and just have this conversation. Uh, but, uh, Brian, since I have the floor now, uh, let's go back to this phrase. The individuals need to negotiate the most intimate relationships in order to get the most from life without losing independence and selfhood. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I'm overprojecting this. Once again, I look at the, at the story that you're telling very much about sort of uh, people who are trying to be themselves within the framework uh, of a story that that overlaps a, a whole lot of time and a whole lot of other issues. And, and so how do they get what they want? Uh, yeah, no, I think that's actually really fair. The, um, you know, in, in this story, the more, the more I was writing it, the more I sort of realized that this was partially about, um, you know, something that I could really relate to. I'm, I'm the, I'm like the characters in the book. I'm the product of like a large sprawling Catholic family that has lots of identification with its sort of mother country. Um, yeah, the, the characters in the book are Ukrainian, but I'm I'm Irish and Italian, and also partially Ukrainian. Mm. Those are like three cultures that have that have managed somehow to like very much keep their own sense of identity. And um, you know, for for me, I mean, you know, none of my relatives are involved in organized crime. That <laughs> you know the, of. That I know of. That I know of exactly. But the you know, but but in some ways the logic is the same of the you know the idea of like you you know there are so many great things to be gotten out of identifying with this larger this you know this larger thing you know that has all this history attached to it and at the same time like you you know you're a person in the 21st century and you know you, you want to be a person in the 21st century and sort of figuring out how to balance those things you know the history with the present is you know i mean for for me that's a lot of fun for the characters it's a great deal of not fun but it's the you know it's the same sort of set of problems and, and ruth it seems to me your book sort of explores the question of um uh, of once again, I mean, the intimate relationship that you lost uh, and and whether or not your contemporary self can fully be itself without, once again, kind of renegotiating that. It's a renegotiation uh, of this gigantic loss you experienced. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had that sense as I was writing and as I got into my own story, um, I felt like I was going back and visiting Little Ruth, you know, at, when at, and trying to figure out, well, you know, what was she like, and and who was this guy, and and how did they 
get together and what about all these other these influences from from my family who go back to uh, Roger and Quakers you know how did how did this person from this uh, family of of pacifists end up marrying someone who was went to West Point and um, I think also one of the questions that your book asks, and I'm going to ask all, all, all of you about this, but I'm going to stay with you for a second, Ruth, is, um, is my life a story? Um, is, is my life a story? Can it be explained as a story? And I think anytime you write a memoir, anytime you work on a memoir, I say this having written a memoir, it's sort of one of the questions, right? Is this an actual story or is life this kind of disconnected, more or less randomized series of events that I'm trying to just live through? Um, and, and so as you looked at the events of your life, I mean, was that one of the questions you asked? Is this a story I can tell? Well, I started with feeling like I had this situation that mm. I was trying to understand. Mm. And I think out of that, out of teasing apart that situation, I found something that seems like a story. Mm-hmm. Although I think one of the decisions you also had to make was um, – that you were going to tell the story as honestly as you possibly could, yes. too. You weren't going to try to make a story where there wasn't one. Right, yeah. Did I hear, was somebody else jumping in there? Did I hear anybody? If not, I'm going to go over to you for a second, love, and sort of, I mean, this is a question that Quentin asks himself all the time in these books. I mean, am I in a story? What kind of story am I in? And, and I guess what I would ask you also is, is this, is Quentin, also, to what degree is Quentin or Julia or anybody, you, trying to organize facts into a story? In other words, I mean, do you think of your own life as a story or are these books an attempt to tell some version of your own life as a story? This is a basic question for me as somebody who reads a lot of novels and has read a lot of novels. I read all the time. It's what I do for fun. When I uh, And it started when I was reading Harry Potter, and uh, which I, I love the Harry Potter books, but I was always conscious that when Harry got to Hogwarts, it was as if he'd never read a fantasy novel. Uh, he was he was arriving for the first time. I mean, there was never this level of self-conscious like, oh, this is great. And it's sort of like that Ursula Le Guin novel, Was It Mercy, but sort of not. I, uh, I felt like there should be that extra level of kind of self-awareness. So I wanted to make my wizards also people who are were fantasy readers. And what happens is when they learn that magic is real, when they start to learn it themselves, they begin to ask themselves the question, why isn't my life more like these heroic stories that I've read? Why isn't my life organized in this way? Where is the avuncular advisor who's supposed to appear and and, and tell me what I should be doing? Where is the narrator who tells me who's evil and who's good? And when I do something, was it a good thing or a bad thing? Was it a mistake? They never find out because their lives aren't like novels. Their lives are like life. Uh, And that's what happens in life. They are lost in that way that real people are lost and that fictional characters somehow are never lost. See, Brian, I would make the argument that I, one thing that I often say is that you really can put people into two cl- groups, two classes, people who think they're living in a drama and people who think they're living in a comedy. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I think I'm living in a comedy, and I tend, yes, to get al- <laughs> I tend to get along better with people who think they're living in a comedy. Now, The Family Hightower is really about people who really are living in a drama. Yes. Although this, this, there's something about the tone of this narrator who's always addressing us and saying, readers this, hey, oh, dear readers, how about that? Yeah. There's something about the tone of this narrator who, who has a different, slightly different way of thinking about this story, although I can never put my finger exactly on, on uh, what the narrator's true take on all this is. But there's something a yeah. little comic and cajoling about his tone. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, this this is kind of getting kind of kind of getting at both questions, which is that the narrator is based heavily on the person who showed me around Cleveland mm. for a couple of days. <laughs> and one of the things that really hit me about it is that, you know, Cleveland has a very rough history. You know, if you were if you were to sort of describe to people, you know, how things have been in Cleveland for the last hundred years, there's not an awful lot to laugh about on its surface. You know, it's it's a pretty rough story. But what really hit me about this guy is that he was very quick to sort of find the humor in all of it, in all of it. You know, there's like there's a point where the river is on fire in Cleveland in, in, in the late 60s. And while I was driving around with him, I said, I bet you guys are really tired of hearing about how the river caught on fire. He's like, are you kidding? We love to talk about how the river caught on fire. <laughs> and then he went on to describe, he's like, in fact, a few years later, the mayor's hair caught on fire during a ribbon cutting ceremony. And he loved telling me this story. And, you know, I realized that that was kind of a great angle to tell this thing. So it was, you know, it kind of, uh, you know, I didn't want to write this this thing that really sort of pounded you over the head with how grim it all is. And, you know, the, the, the guy who was showing me around Cleveland was the was the way out, you know. But I but I do think that, like, I mean, the, the, the other part of your question is that, you know, the idea is, that is there a story at all? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there's... Uh, you know, in in my own case, I don't. I think it's random. You know, if if you look at if I look back at my own story history, there's not much of a story there. It's just you know he did this and then he did that and then he did that and then he did that. But I'm always interested in the kind of people where their lives really do seem to be stories. You know, like I I in a completely different way. Like I know a guy who's who's you know making his way as a country singer, and his biography is perfect for being a country singer. I mean, it's it's ridiculous how. <laughs> You know, when somebody sits down to write his biography, it's going to read like, you know, it's it's going to read like this giant piece of mythology, but it's all real, mm-hmm. you know, and that's and I, I'm always interested in people like that where they're where their their real lives are suspiciously close to something that you'd imagine more like being in a novel. Um, yeah, go ahead, Ruth. Um, I, I just wanted to uh, say something about I love this idea of how do you see your life, because mm. I just realized at this moment that in a way I, I sort of see my life as is with irony mm-hmm. and and more humor than even though it's full of all kinds of tragic things that there there's something ironic about the way things happen and uh, the way I resolve them but I also wanted to say something about Lev's uh, book in um, in that first book in the trilogy when Quentin is in his room and he discovers he's just been accepted into the academy and he discovers that there are all these suits hanging in the closet. Mm. And I love that moment where he's looking at these suits and seeing that, oh, someone wore them already. But he has this wonderful human reaction of putting one on and saying, I'm a magician. It was so... (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. It's it's, it's everything he longs for. Um, (laughs) But it's a a scene that happens early on in the book. Uh, Quentin's one of these people who has a lot to learn about life as well as magic. Uh, and when he arrives and discovers that magic is real and he and he becomes a magician, uh, he thinks that all his troubles are over. He figures, like, the book can end right here because, uh, you know, I'm set. Uh, and what, of course, he discovers uh, over time is that um, his troubles are, are just beginning. And the really serious problems that you have to grapple with in life um, aren't really the kind of problems that magic solves. Um, I, there is... Uh irony running through all three of these books, uh, uh, in, but in different ways. I, I think we should take a break right now. I'm sure the producers would be happy if we took a break right now. Or we'll come back with more of Ruth Crocker, Lev Grossman, Brian Slattery, tell you more about their books, more about being an author in 2014. <laughs> 
Uh, we're back. Brian Slattery is here. Uh, his newest book is The Family Hightower. Lev Grossman is joining us uh, from a studio elsewhere. Brian was just worried that Lev is sitting there all by himself in the studio, and I said, no. The animals from Fillory follow Lev everywhere that he goes. He's never alone. Uh, and uh, his new newest book, the, the third of the trilogy, is The Magician's Land. Ruth Crocker is here in studio uh, with me and Brian. Uh, her a new book is Those Who Remain, Remembering and Reunion After War. Um, so, you know, the, we've got like this list of shows that we always talk about doing and then we never do them uh, and because they're too hard or they're too complicated. And one of them that uh, Betsy and I have been talking about for a really long time, I wanted to do a, a show. You know how they all say there are only seven stories, you know, or something like that. There's seven plots and they just recycled all the time. I wanted to do a show about what those are. Well, well, <laughs> everyone says that. Well, what are those stories? <laughs> and so, and actually, whenever we talk about doing it, we talk about Brian and Lev, the two of the people we talk, think, well, they, they would be good guests. I think we're kind of almost doing that st- show right now, or at least I want to go into that right now and just talk a little bit about, uh, and I'm going to open up um, a gender can of worms, too, because that'll be interesting. So um, I'm going to start with Brian and Lev here. So I have this... Um, no, I'm going to start with Ruth. Uh, I have this glib and probably um, – I feel so powerful right now. I have this glib and probably hollow axiom that all American male narratives are either the great Gatsby or the music man. So the first is the story of someone's upward rise accompanied by his usually unsuccessful attempt to outlive his past. And the second is about someone who says and maybe even believes that he can manipulate his surroundings and change the world. So, I mean, like Bill Clinton is sort of the, the, the music man, except that his, that conceals a great Gatsby narrative underneath, you know. So um, so th- those are sort of male stories. But I sort of feel like women's stories are different. Um, this is the can of worms I'm about to open up. And so I will go to you, Ruth. And, and I think one of the women's, if there's se- seven plots for men and seven plots for women, one of the women's plots, and maybe there's only three or four of each, uh, one of the women's plots is this kind of notion that something is fundamentally wrong and almost can't be, life can't begin until this is fixed, you know, and, and, and that that the, the protagonist, the narrator, the writer, somebody has to go on some kind of journey to fix this. I mean, you see this in Eat, Eat Pray, Love. You see this in in, um, in, in uh, Cheryl Strayed's book, Wild, which is now being made into a movie. That, and it's you see it a little bit in your book, too, that this is kind of it's that kind of narrative. I, I don't know. React to that. Yeah, I think I think you're right, because I, I had the sense that something happened to me. It wasn't as if I was I was just kind of following along early in my life and things happened to me. And then all of a sudden I had to I, I had to take charge at a point when the ultimate had happened. Right. And you don't want to be somebody that's the thing. I mean, uh, the people that things happen to are like David Copperfield and Charlie Brown. You know, and, you know, you don't ultimately you don't want to be those people. You want to be self-directed rather than the sort of. The object of a plot, uh, you know, you, you know, you want to be the the protagonist of your own story. Well, now I'm going to turn to to uh, Brian and Lev. And by the way, this is a perfectly good time to tell me that my head is up my behind um, about this theory or <laughs> anything. But you know, I was sort of I was trying to think whether I could apply my theory to your books, and and it's kind of complicated with the magicians, uh, the magician trilogy. I'm not really sure whether it's a Great Gatsby story or a Music Man story. There are kind of elements of both, but uh, I mean, let's say it's neither of those. Um, Lev, do you feel like it's part of some kind of archetypal? You know, one of the seven great plots that nobody knows what they are. Well, yeah, I mean, certainly, I, I'm just I'm uncomfortable with this theory because it makes novel writing sound e- easy, and I'm <laughs> I, I try to make it sound as difficult as possible. Um, I certainly was conscious of following uh, in a, in a kind of loose way um, the stories of the various uh, books in the Chronicles of Narnia, 
the uh, first magician's book is a sort of gentle gloss on the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, this coming-of-age story. Uh, the second book uh, follows the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which is much more of a kind of hero's journey, uh, epic voyage kind of story. Uh, and then the final, the final one is kind of a uh, is is a sort of story of creation and destruction, and it's, it's it it follows Magician's Nephew and, and Last Battle. So um, I I found it very freeing actually as a writer when I gave up trying to invent new stories uh, and instead tried to just put my personal imprint on pre-existing stories. Um, uh, well, see, that's we're, we're we're right in the wheelhouse of that show idea. So <laughs> we are doing that show right now. So um, Brian, I feel like. You know, if I had to pick, I mean, there are these stories like The Great Gatsby and Citizen Kane, and we can oh, say, sure. say a bunch of other ones about Absolutely. people who seek something, yes. and, and they think that with the arrival at that place, with the deliverance of that thing that they they seek, they will change, and they will rise above their circumstances, and they'll outlive their past, and that yeah. that very much seems to be the, the thrust of The Family Hightower. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, more than any of the other books I've written, I was feeling like the weight of just how many stories are out there that are that are really similar to this one. And there is an awful lot of, you know, saying, well, you know, here's the parts where I should I should fall into that groove and here are the parts where I should diverge from it. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was all pretty conscious. Um, the I mean, the, the other part of your question, though, is to like how many stories are out there. Um, yeah, I mean, it's true that like for that's true for the most part, right? This is a great opportunity though for me to get up on my like soapbox to make sure everybody in the world reads Octavia Butler, because that's one of those. She's one of those writers where one of the things that she's doing is trying to come up with new stories, and the the ways that I, you know, the the uh, my first experience with her was like kind of face melting because there's that sense of I don't even know what kind of story this is right now. And there's something very exhilarating about, you know, it's that it's that sense you get when you're a kid, you know, when you're first discovering how stories work at all. You know, and she, you know, she's the most recent person to, you know, to, to make me have that experience all over again. So it's one of those things where, like, I agree with you. I almost sometimes I say there's only one story. Right. But then you, you come across someone like her and realize that, you know, there's. There's still plenty of room out there if we apply ourselves. Well, there's it, there's the Joseph Campbell story, right, which is like sort of the, the big myth narrative that has, but yeah. it really has a lot of stuff in it. Yeah. Um, and and uh, um, well, you know, I want to just go from there to to the 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 courage that it takes in this day and age to write a book. Um, the uh, <laughs> one of the reasons I stopped writing books, I, I have like this fairly cynical agent, and I was. Um, on the phone to her one day and I was saying, you know, I was just talking to the people at Warner Books about the book that we're doing and I, I don't know what my question to her was. Like, what should I ask them? And she said, you should ask them why anyone would read your book uh, in a day when there's 8,000 books out there, you know, every six months and, and you know, why would anyone <laughs> care about your book? I think you're my agent. Why are you saying this to me? But but she's sort of right, you know, and, and there's, I mean, Ruth, it takes a certain amount of guts to write a book. Even, I mean, because there is Eat, Pray, Love, because there is Wild, because there is whatever book you feel most the weight of or every, well, five books you feel most the weight of, it takes a lot of courage to say, no, you know what? I'm Ruth Crocker. I've got a story to tell that's significantly different enough that I'm going to do it. But what else does it take? Why? What gave you the guts to write a book? You know, I I didn't really think about all those other writers when I was writing my book. I, I had to write this book. It, it, the story just kept coming back to me, and you know, I wrote it in essays. I wrote it in 
uh, all kinds of different forms. And then finally, when I began to grapple with the structure of the book, I began to figure out what the story was. But I had to write this book. I had to tell this story. It was just a compulsion. Um, Lev, I think we've all had, however, the experience of putting down a book. I haven't read any Octavia Butler, but you know, you put down, I don't know, Underworld by Don DeLillo, and you think, oh, well, why would I really bother writing a book now? I mean, what would be the point <laughs> of writing a novel now, now that I've read this book? I mean, it's not going to be, if I write something, it won't be as good as that. So why would I do it? Um, so talk a little bit about the, the authorial impulse for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, one good test, I guess, is, is and I recommend this to all writers, is, is see if you can stop. See if you can stop writing. Because, uh, you know, ultimately you need that you need that compulsion. And it happens to me sometimes. I'll read a book um, like, uh, I don't know, Ubik by Philip K. Dick is one of them. It's one of my favorite novels. And I put it down, and, I, and for about a week I can write nothing. Or, you know, Ulysses or Mrs. Dalloway, probably the greatest novel of the 20th century. I put it down, for a week I can write nothing. But somehow the itch comes back and you say, but, but there's a book out there that I, I'm looking for and it, it doesn't exist yet. It's not in any library. And I keep reading and looking for it. And finally you realize... I need this ghost book. I need to write this ghost book and 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 make it real. Um, uh, and you know everything, every piece of data that comes into your life tells you this is a bad idea, and there are better things you should be doing. It is never a good time to write a book. There's never a good reason to write a book, but sometimes you just can't help it, uh, and that's sort of the best possible sign. We got a great tweet from Ben, uh, who's tweeting as a, at WNPR Colin, where Greg Hill will tweet back to you. Uh, ben tweets, uh, we need new stories because while every plot may have already been used, our reactions to those ideas are always evolving. And I think that's right. I mean, I think that the great description of really kind of all, all three of these books, too, is that uh, you may have heard some version of this story before, but the way that these writers are reacting uh, to the same material and to the way we're reacting to the way these writers react is is evolving and changing and new and dynamic. Um, Brian... Uh, I think that's very true. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I don't want to talk over you, yeah. but uh, one of the questions that, that bedeviled me a lot while I was writing was this question of the hero's journey what would it look like if you told it not in mythical terms, not in Joseph Campbell terms, but in realist terms, in the language of the uh, everyday re- realist novels we know it now? What would a hero look like right now uh, if, if a hero existed in the world? Um, what would that person do all day? What would they do when they got up in the morning? Uh, and you know, being able to answer that question, I think, is a really important thing for uh, our writers in our culture to be able to do. Um, actually, let me build on that with you, Brian, for a second. You may have a place that you want. Did you have somebody yeah. you wanted no, to go? No, I mean, go, I, go I mean, I, I, Lev, Lev said it as, Lev said it like I would like to have said it. I, I <laughs> agree with him completely. I think that, I think that part of it also is that when people ask that question of like, you know, why, why would you do it when there's this amazing book out there? Um, I think that there's this, there's this way, I think that a lot of people think that when someone's writing a book, they have this desire to like, write a masterpiece that people will read a thousand years from now and they're going to make a million dollars. And I don't think that, I mean, I certainly don't have those kinds of ambitions and I'm not sure that anybody does. I mean, I think you, you write them just, you know, because not, you know, partially because of that compulsion, but also partially because of the, the sense of connection you get with anybody who, who reads, who reads one of your books. You know, there's, there's a lot of pleasure in, in meeting those people and sort of seeing that you have something in common. And it's, it's a weird way of like meeting people and connecting with people that you would never otherwise connect with, and you know that that sort of sense of community building is really enriching, and it does. There don't have to be a million of them for it to be worthwhile. Can I 
add something yes, to that? Yes, please do. I, I absolutely agree with you. And one of the things that I never expected about my book is this community that has formed around it. And it's even, it's fascinating that people have even contacted me and said things like, I think my husband is in that picture on the cover of the guys. Oh, cool. Uh, and someone else said, I think I met your husband once. He came with his unit and surrounded our uh, area, and he was a nice guy, so I think I met him. And that those people trying to connect with my story tells me that somehow I must be telling their story in a certain way, too, or they're feeling part of the story circle or something. I think also when you read a memoir like this one, it's sort of never done. I mean, it's done. It's done. It's bound between covers. But because, in fact, so much of your job in this memoir was to reconstruct the past and work with the documentary evidence, evidence that you could get your hands on, plus your own memories, plus documentary evidence, which we won't do any spoilers here. It wasn't as available to you as maybe you thought it was going to be. Um, and... Um, what am I trying to say? Oh, that, that you know, so you're constantly searching. You know, what's the other thing I don't know? Why can't I find this thing out about my, my husband? Why can't I learn this thing? But then the book comes out and there's a little bit more press and stuff like that. And suddenly all these people that you really needed when you were writing the book present themselves with tons of new information. I don't know what you do with that exactly, though. I mean, you can't really do those who remain, too, right? <laughs> good, good question. Well, sure. second edition <laughs> with an appendix or something like that. Um, you know, Brian, I just wanted to come back to one thing about you because I, I think there's um, an, an interesting thing that you and Lev are both dealing with. And Lev has kind of talked about it um, uh, in just a couple of seconds ago. And he's sort of saying, like, well, what, you know, what if the people in the Joseph Campbell story really kind of knew that they were in the Joseph Campbell story or were at least sort of conscious uh, and recognizable people, people like us, you know, but, but in a Joseph Campbell story. And I think that's <laughs> it's sort of like you can't write the Epic of Gilgamesh anymore with Gilgamesh just sort of marching through all this stuff because because now he would know. You yeah. know, no, I actually have a, I have a, I, every once in a while, I, I really like Beowulf. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I really envy <laughs> about Beowulf is the idea that he could just write that and that was it. There was no commentary necessary or he didn't, have a, bl- he didn't have a blog. Yeah. Yeah. He was just this guy <laughs> writing this crazy poem. But it, I think it's also true that now, I mean, I actually, I think the tipping point actually didn't happen in literature. It happened in Marvel comic books when I may have said this to you before but uh, there was an episode early on in Spider-Man where he actually swung through the window of a psychiatrist and put his web around the psychiatrist and sat down in the other chair and said why am I doing this? You know why (laughs) people don't even like me that much why would anybody be doing this? Uh, Why would I be putting on a costume like going around trying to save people? I mean what kind of life is that? Um, And sort of after that happened you, you you can't just be Superman who didn't ask himself those kinds of questions. Now, I think what you did in Family Hightower is assign a lot of that questioning to the narrator. I mean, a lot of your characters, in a way, are walking through the story. They they yeah. they have less time to reflect on it because they're so screwed. Yeah, that's that's most of it. I mean, it's, as I realize that these are all people who live like pretty fraught lives. Like they don't have the they don't have time to think about whether their lives are stories or not. You know, you know it's, <laughs> that's all there is to it. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. Uh, this time is flying by here. That's usually a good sign. Brian Slattery, Lev Grossman, and Ruth Crocker, all with us. All authors will come back after this.
My breakfast cereal, Joy's Carol Oats. There's a new novel in every box. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Jackie Filson. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. The part of Bill Curry was played by John Grisham. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff spraying old book smell on their clothes, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, everything that's wrong with you can be traced back to inflammation. And now, back to Colin. We, this is another show Betsy and I have been talking about doing for a really long time because there are these uh, researchers down at Yale who really do, they are developing this kind of grand unified theory of disease uh, that most ailments uh, come from something they call inflammation, which might be a little bit different from what you think of as inflammation. Anyway, stay tuned. Uh, with us right now, uh, Brian Slattery, Lev Grossman, uh, and Ruth Crocker, uh, all authors of books. Uh, the Family Hightower is Brian's book. The Magician's Land is the third uh, book of Lev's uh, trilogy. And uh, Those Who Remain, Remembrance and Reunion, after war is Ruth Crocker's memoir of um, her search for her her own past in a way uh, uh, following the death of her husband in Vietnam uh, and, and then the many decades that, that came after that. So um, let's open another can of worms uh, and I think let's talk about genre a little bit. So uh, and I think a lot of us maybe all of us read uh, this um, uh, piece uh, called The Better Way to Think About the Genre Debate by Joshua Rothman in The New Yorker. Maybe we didn't all read it. I don't know. But it, you know I actually had and I am a self-confessed Philistine at this point anyway. But uh, when I saw the fiction finalist for the National Book Awards, I noticed that one of them was uh, uh, called Station Eleven. It's by Emily St. John Mandel. Um, it is, um, it, and it is sort of uh, about a post-apocalyptic scenario, about a pandemic, uh, a sort of, I think, a flu-like pandemic, which has destroyed civilization. And I, I actually, Brian, I have to say... Uh, I have really reached the point where I can't do this anymore. Although I kind of want to read this book, but <laughs> it's like I have sitting, I have, I have sitting on my night table, like you know, one of the, the Justin Cronin books and Wool yeah. by Hugh Howey and stuff. And I just, I start reading these things and I go, God, this is just so, I'm so, I don't want vampires and people living underground being miserable and poison outside. And I just, I don't know if yeah. I can do this anymore. Um, and I was sort of surprised to see her book among the nominees but my sense is that you are very you're not inclined to sort of look at something like this as a genre book first and then everything else later uh yeah i mean this has been one of those this is one of those questions like ever since i submitted a first anything to anyone there's been that question of like what the heck genre is what what do you what do you think you're writing in and i don't i don't even know um you know, to to me, like the genre labels always have always felt something more like something you organize a bookstore with, or use it to frame your thoughts in a in a review or a critical piece, rather than something that you, you know, that you think about all that much when you're actually making something. And I don't, I don't, even, I'm not even sure that a lot of readers think about genre that way. Obviously, there are some people who would describe themselves as like hardcore genre readers, but I don't think that I, I think that a lot of people are more omnivorous than that. Um, but yeah, I mean the that that whole that whole question of like what genre something fits into is uh I mean my my impression I haven't read Station 11, but my impression is that like that you know she she used some of like those nice genre tropes as tools, you mm -hmm. know, just like anybody else would. Um and managed to produce something that a lot of people have resonated with, which is obviously really cool. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I, I yeah. mean, I'm interested in it, although I really do feel, yeah. I, I, I'm, I remember like Ridley Walker and the Road Warrior, and it was kind of like, oh, wow, post-apocalypse, that's great. Right. But I feel like supply is eclipsed demand in some ways. There's been an awful lot of it. I mean, there's been an awful lot of it. I mean, my first three books were all sort of apocalyptic. And when the first one came out, there's that thing of like, why are you even writing about this? And by the time the third <laughs> one came out, it was like, why are so many people writing about this? And like, I, I, I feel like I've had this weird sort of, front row seat to this flood of post-apocalyptic stories that I'm at a loss to really account for. Well, you know, Lev, one of the uh, things that has been said about Station Eleven is that it's a little bit of, of a take on the genre, too. And 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 I think you could sort of say that about m- the magicians. I mean, we've sort of been saying that all along, and that the trilogy... You know, I, I'm assuming you're not trying to wrestle away a genre label, uh, but may- maybe you feel differently about it. No, no. Uh, in fact, uh, when pressed, I, I self-identify as a fantasy novelist, uh, and um, that, I feel good about that. Um, uh, and the magicians, you know, it's... <laughs> it sounds like a 12-step so meeting here now or something. Um, uh, I mean, the magicians, is, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny book in that it is, it, it is a fantasy novel. It's about people who go to a school for wizards. Um, you know, there's no... That, that, that's the fact of it. It uses a lot of um, literary structures. It's told the way in the kind of the language of a literary novel. Um, it's structured... Uh, which I borrowed from Brideshead Revisited, is a, is a literary structure rather than a, a, a genre structure. But I feel like, you know, one of the things that books, like a book, uh, like The Magicians or Station Eleven, which I loved, uh, so exciting, is the co-presence in, within one book of genre conventions and literary conventions. And you never quite know what you're going to get. Is someone going to save the world uh, uh, or, or, or is the world going to perish the way it might in a, in a, more in a, in a sort of more deconstructed literary novel, uh, you never quite know which rules apply. And I find that terribly exciting. Yeah, whenever I'm selling your work, which I frequently do, uh, I mean, on an individual basis, I, I sort of argue to, with people that if you don't like this genre, you're you're still going to, you've got a very good chance of liking these books. The the most recent thing I said was, imagine that the people in uh, the Harry Potter books were the people in Bright Lights, Big City, and you'll come, you know, pretty close to it. People thought it was a very dated explanation. Um, Ruth, um, when, I, when I said genre during the break, you said it was a depressing topic, and then you had a, said you had a genre story uh, to tell. Well, when I was in uh, graduate school, uh, I wrote a piece of fiction on uh, one occasion, and my uh, teacher said, oh, this is genre. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know. He said, I think you should stick to nonfiction. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, go back to the truth. Forget about this. <laughs> that is did depressing. He, did he say what genre it was? He didn't say. Oh, and that, was, that <laughs> remained a mystery. But I felt like it was a way of saying it was non-literary. Uh, and mm-hmm. I think Lev's comment is really interesting that it's, you know what this I you know I do think that's a fight that some people are still having um my impression is that the like the general culture has sort of moved past that <laughs> and whoever I, I don't know what gate is being kept with that fight anymore but somebody seems <laughs> to still be keeping it yeah well, I think also it's such a weird thing to say. This is genre, isn't everything genre, or, or either, either everything's genre or not? Now, now you're speaking my language. That's, <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it, the, the, the idea that literary fiction is not a genre is, is always right. very interesting to me, and I've I've been waiting for somebody to explain convincingly why that's not true. You know, I saw a fantastic <laughs> quote on a on a blog once. Somebody wrote, um, "The sooner that literary fiction can wake up uh, and realize." Uh, its status as a genre, the sooner it can get the help it so desperately needs. <laughs> I feel like, you know, literary fiction has to accept that it, it functions by conventions and tropes uh, just the way any other genre does. And also that that's kind of Except that it pretends right? that it doesn't. 
<laughs> but there's also something wonderful about all those tropes, right? I mean, there's, I think that, I mean, going back to what we were talking about before, I mean, those, those tropes are like, are like playground equipment. You know, you can. People speak about them as if you know, genre writers are sort of these helpless creatures bound by the iron shackles right. of their conventions. Uh, but in fact, they're terribly fun. And, and, and mm-hmm. you know, one of the things you can do when you're writing in a genre that has rules, you can break rules. Uh, and there's nothing more fun than that. Mm-hmm. Um, I dare not bring up another topic because we only have a few seconds left here. But so instead, I'm going to encourage um, everybody to read uh, one or all three, ideally, of these books. Brian Slattery's new book is The Family Hightower. It's it's all the more of the moment. It's it's so Ukrainian and so Cleveland and so gangstery. <laughs> uh, Lev Grossman's uh, You've Got to Start at the Beginning with the Magicians. Read all three of them, The Magician King and the final book, The Magician's Land. Ruth Crocker's book, um, uh, Taking Us Back uh, to Vietnam in a very, very interesting way. I mean, there may only be seven plots, but I don't think anybody ever told this story this particular way. So thank you very much. Can I help you find something, miss? Yeah, I'm looking for memoirs. Well, we've got the way better than your life section over here. Pretty much exactly like your life over there, and way worse than your life over here. Wow, well, that's a Sophie's choice. Mm, Not really, but that book is in fiction, over there.